Welcome to the Save or Die podcast, a podcast about classical Dungeons and Dragons. If it's in a box, we'll talk about it. Welcome back, folks, and this would be adventure number five of the Save or Die podcast, or the Sod podcast. Oh, can I say that, actually? I don't know, guys. What do you think? Well, we're not in Britain, so... Yes, but we might have British listeners. <gasps> so they might sod off... Never mind. Uh, so <laughs> More like they'll just snicker at us. Yeah, they'll probably snicker. Sod all the time. Yep. Pretty much. Well, if you just walked into this podcast, then you probably hurt yourself, So, because uh, it's pretty vital. Anyway, if you're just uh, first listening to this podcast for the very first time, we are the Save or Die podcast. I am your host, uh, DM Vince, along with uh, my co-host, DM Liz. Liz, say hello. Hello. See? <laughs> and then we have uh, DM Mike in the background, giggling again this week. It's not giggling. It's a chuckle. There's a like, serious difference there. Oh, excuse me. He's schoolgirl chuckling. Anyway. <laughs> and the purpose of this this campaign, I was going to say, the purpose of we could call it a campaign if you'd like. <laughs> this epic campaign that we're doing here called the show, Adventure Number 5, uh, Classical Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, we're bringing you the best that comes out of a box, if the box is still left over, because most boxes got crushed, so... But we're bringing you the best we possibly can. Uh, so, if you like it, great. Give us an email at saveordiepodcast at gmail.com. You can also um, go to saveordie.info is our website and uh, sign up there on the forums. And you can comment. A lot of people have been commenting again, but we'll get into that in a few seconds. So, let's start off like we normally do every week. What have you done, Classical? Lately, Mike. Well, other than reading the module put up for a review, I finished reading my strategic reviews. Yeah. Start on dragon number one. The dragon. The dragon. Yep. Yeah. I know a lot of people actually requested us to. Uh, was it the dragon or was it the dungeon to go back to number one and actually give us a review of that? I can't remember. I think I saw a post somewhere about that. Dragon. Cool. I think it was dragon. We'll do that. All right, cool. Yeah. Did you do anything else, or? Um, no, that's pretty much it. I've been, you know, again, getting ready to teach, so. Oh. Well. Or at least make a stab at it, so <laughs> yeah. that's been my free time, more or less. Liz, what about you? Ah, about the closest thing I've gotten to classic D&D is listening to Rick Wakeman Journey in the Center of the Earth CD set, which isn't technically gaming, but it's very good to game too as background music. Inspiring. That's about all I can say. <laughs> Inspiring, huh? Yeah. Still reading Maze of Peril. Yeah, but it's kind of embarrassing after three weeks. It's such a small <laughs> little book. I'm still reading it. It's like, God, is she a moron? It's like, no, I'm just reading it very slowly. <laughs> hey, I sometimes take months to read books because I bring them to work, and then during my break, I'll just read here and then read a chapter, go back to work, and then pick it up again the next day. And that's pretty much how I'm doing with Maze of Peril is... I'll read a little bit of it before going to sleep at night, so I only go through about maybe five or six pages, and then it's bedtime for Lizzie's. Aw, <laughs> Lizzie and the kitty? Yeesh. 
Aww. Well, I have been focusing hard on my uh, soon-to-be mentor game for the convention I'm going to this Saturday, Betacon. I got uh, a game going on from 1 to 4, and actually I've stolen the module. No, I haven't stolen. Not like the last time stolen, but (laughs) I actually went to uh, dragonsfoot.org, and I took out the Spider Farms uh, module. I know it's for advanced, but I decided to take that mini-adventure and make it into a Mensur Basic adventure. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's actually a pretty cool adventure about... uh, It's kind of a little bit of a mystery. I don't know if you've read it, Mike and Liz, but... Uh, a long time ago. Yeah, 2003 it came out. So it's a pretty cool module about uh, uh, these shadow goblins that attack the spider farm, and you have to figure out what they're doing and why they're there and try to rescue uh, the farmer and his daughter. So it's kind of cool. It's good for... I thought it was pretty perfect for a three-hour time slot for a convention, so... So is the daughter a goth? <laughs> wow. Being a spider farmer, I mean. Yes. Yes. Okay. She, she likes Jacob, too. Ah. Gotcha. <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, guys, why don't you come follow me over this way while we uh, head down into the dungeon. Uh, I got something to show you down here in the dungeon. It's a new little segment we're working up here. So get down these steps and open this, this door here. <sighs> Ah, you hear the bubbles and everything? This is going to be our new segment where we're going to be doing the news and the emails from the cauldron. It's a pretty cool sounding segment. And there was another door that someone just opened, but you know, this creepy thing is going on in the background. <laughs> anyway, so uh, actually Mike requested this segment from the cauldron, so Mike gets all credit for this. Yeah, or blame, as, it, as the case may be. So, do we have any emails this week, Liz? We do. <gasps> we do. Yes. Reach down that in that cauldron and try not to burn your hand too much. <laughs> okay, here's a ladle. Use the ladle and pull out the yeah, eyeballs. Yeah, scoop them up with the ladle. There you go. Oh, all right. Okay, we have two emails. Yay. Our first email is from Chris. Hi, Chris. And his email is titled, Colors Ouch. He says, Rogue's Gallery, being a Luddite and antisocial at that, is it only on Facebook that the photo fits appear? I'm ashamed to say, Chris, that I have not the faintest idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Maybe I'm kind of a Luddite myself. Anyway, if you could email us again and perhaps go into a little more detail, we will do our very best to answer your question on our next podcast, unless either Mike or Vince are smarter than I am and know what's going on. No, I think we were, Mike and I were both just as baffled when we saw that. I'm, we were kind of figuring out what that meant, but... I, I blew my saving throw, so I have no idea. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, stole my saving throw. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I don't. Sorry, Chris. I, I'm not sure what you mean, and I apologize for that. But you know, what are you going to do? Can't answer Write everything. Write us back. Tell us. We're, we're Liz and I are not the professor here. So. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> Professor Mike. How are we doing today? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we'll we'll Our- answer next time. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Our next email is from Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. He says, Hi, folks. I just got through listening to your first two podcasts. Awesome. They are great, and I hope you keep making them for a long time. 
It is good to hear that others like the classic D&D versions as well. Cheers, Andrew. Well, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. You still have a couple more episodes to listen to. (laughs) Now, hopefully you won't change your mind by the time you get to this one. Wow. Not cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, I guess that, uh, that... Do we have any more emails or... That was it. That's oh. all I've got anyway. Well, maybe... I don't know. I was I was thinking maybe he meant the first email. I was thinking more about that as you were reading the other email, which I shouldn't be doing, but, you know. Maybe he doesn't like the colors of the website. You know, maybe he thinks they're too, like, I don't know, orangey or something. <laughs> Is it that bad? I thought it was nice. Well, it was hard for me to read when we first put up the site. Well, that was and... that gray-on-gray thing I had, yeah. Yeah, um, it's easier for me to look at now. So, if know. it is talking about the website, it has gotten better. It really has. <laughs> I've put nice graphics on there and stuff, yeah. And not that fourth edition banner you had up there for a while. Oh, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was getting my shot in. Yeah, okay. You, you're, you're <laughs> fine, one one and one here. Uh, yeah, also, uh, some people were asking Facebook. You can find us on Facebook. We actually have a URL now. And that would be facebook.com slash saverdiepodcast, I believe. Originally, I was going to name it the Sod Podcast, but I figured that sounded, sounded corny. So, <laughs> the Saver Die, just Saver Die Podcast at Facebook, the Facebook site. Uh, please join it. Uh, a lot of people were chatting up there. We actually, we had Rob on there just putting up tons of links for uh, old games and, uh, like, didn't he put up uh, Targa up there, which I... Something else. Original D&D forums and a bunch of yeah, other things. He white put box set. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. He was going nuts with links and everything. I was going, thanks, my, uh, Rob. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Is that Rob Kunz? No. No, no. Oh, okay. I did notice that uh, there, there were some former TSR writers mixed in the fanship page there, but I won't say who they are. But they're totally cool for signing up as our friend on Facebook. Yeah. Of course. All right. So uh, do we have any announcements this week, uh, Mike? Well, the only thing that springs to mind is the announced merger between Frog God Games and Mythmere Games. Now, for those who don't know, Frog God Games is one half of the original Necromancer Games line. Yes, the the partner of Necromancer at Necromancer Bill Owen, or sorry Bill Webb. Yeah, Bill Webb. Um, went to create Frog God to do some things for Pathfinder. Anyway, he's thanks to this merger, he's going to be doing a lot of stuff apparently with Swords and Wizardry, including a new version of the Swords and Wizardry rules rulebook called the Complete Rules Swords and Wizardry, 128 page book. Um, that's all we know right now. We expect there'll be more announcements as they come down the pike. I but know. I'm, I know there was a couple cla- There was a couple things cut out and things added. He was telling me, but I really can't say what they were. I guess you're just gonna have to actually wait. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we're going to get more information, and we'll be bringing it in the next episode or two, depending on how long it takes for stuff to gel and surface. Uh, but yeah. whole, I think it's a good idea. I, Not bad. I, I'm looking forward to it. I've, I liked Bill Webb's Rapanathug yeah. and Crucible of Freya. 
we're going to try to get uh, Mr. Webb and Mr. Finch on the podcast to uh, chat it up with us and maybe tell us some inside secrets. Uh, I know uh, uh, Bill Webb was interested in uh, in working with uh, us to get some news out and some maybe uh, modules out so we can uh, review them and uh, get the word out for people because, you know, he wants to promote the OSR. He's really, he's been playing OSR, he was telling me, for 28 years now and even his, he, his kids are playing it. He was telling me he held a uh, sword and wizardry, uh, I guess it would be called uh, camp. Well, he said it was at his daughter's camp, and he ran a sword and wizardry like seminar, and he had like so many kids sign up that he couldn't control it at one point, and he convinced at least a handful to a dozen of them to convert from third edition to sword and wizardry. So, yeah, and they were between the age of 10 and 15, he said. Excellent. Yeah, he 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 was quite happy with him with that, and so he's Definitely. a big supporter. Necromancer Games, he said, was not gone. It's still working on things. They still have some things contracted to come out, uh, but he really couldn't comment on what it was at the time. So, yeah, okay. well, Frog God Games does have their own website. Yes, www.talesthefroggod.com. I believe we even have a link to them on our Save or Die website. Yes, we do. So you can look around over there and maybe get some more information about the complete rules for Swords and Wizardry coming out. Yeah, it's uh, there. It's a basic website right now as as he's working on it with... Uh, actually, his wife was doing the website design, so kudos mm. to her. So they'll be working on uh, putting stuff product up and uh, designing it as time goes on, and uh, you'll have that uh, old-school feel to it. Just like uh, Necromancer Games had that old-school feel to it, uh, the Frog God games will have the old-school feel to it. So I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen with this. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, I know it's probably too much to hope, but I would love for them to put relaunch Rapanathuk for Swords and Wizardry. You that never, would be so cool. You never know. Yeah, you never know, but... You don't without probably... the gigantic stat blocks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean probably get them all into one, one good-sized book rather than three, <laughs> just getting rid of the stat blocks. Okay, cool. So I guess that'll wrap up all the news for now. Uh, we'll step out of the, the cauldron room and we'll go to uh, DM Fiat. Nope. Sorry. What? Uh, nope, you're wrong. Look it up. I don't have to look it up. It's common knowledge. Nope. No, no, no! Yeah, yeah. So DM Fiat. I love the bump of this. so DM Fiat, what do we have this week, Mike? Talking about the level of lethality. I'm speaking particularly of player character lethality in campaigns. So characters, not players. <laughs> I would hope not. Oh, no. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Don't kill your players. Kill your characters. That their characters. But yeah. Hey. What what was that? There's a DMs don't kill characters, players kill characters. <laughs> exactly. Well, mostly. So when when you're sitting in a bar and you look under the table and a lid cheats your face, okay, that the DM is killing you at that point. 
You might be a redneck. Oh, sorry. Wrong <laughs> it just You might say- be a kill- killer GM if... <laughs> you just kind of set it up for you might be a redneck thing when you said that. I don't know why. But, uh, <laughs> all right, so lethality in a campaign. Explain a little bit more why that we picked this topic. And Well, basically, I've played... Well, I've predominantly been a DM. I've played a lot as well. And right. it seems like every DM and and their table have different levels of you know being of killing off characters i mean there's some where literally one wrong move and your character is dead there are others who i've heard actually say unless you do something stupid you're probably not going to die and then i've heard some people say you know for the first 3 to 6 sessions i go ahead and tell my char- my players their characters will not die. And that's a good thing because it encourages them to do weird, you know, swashbuckly type things. Okay, so you're basically saying there is like, um, let's, let's, uh, think Star Trek and the holodeck when they have that safety feature on, you can do whatever the heck you want, but you'll just never die no matter what you do? Yes. Why I don't agree with that personally, but I've heard of it. Okay, so... The stance that we're having here today is, or I should say, the stance either do we do it or we don't do it. Is that pretty much our stance and how we feel about it? Or yeah, yeah. What what you do in your own campaigns? What do you think is good or not? All right. My personal opinion. Okay. And I'll start off. Oh sure. Is that you've got to have a certain amount of lethality, right? Even just bad luck, because bad luck happens in the real world. I mean, you know, you can plan everything to the nth detail, and then just that wandering monster coming around the corner can mess any mess up all your nifty little plans. Right. Um, that being said, I don't generally put a dragon in a first-level <laughs> module. Um, at most, I might put a four- or five-hit die creature, but it's generally one of those... There's no reason for you to mess with that monster, and if you do, you deserve to die. Uh, one of the modules I wrote for Castles and Crusades, Shadows of the Halfling Hall, there's a bone golem called a bag of bones in a room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, first-level characters, this thing's five-hit die. And yeah, you go in there, you're probably going to get your butt handed to you. Oh yeah, But there's course. no reason for you to go in that room. But it's there. Right. It's there to teach people. You know, the, oh, it's a monster, we must kill it kind of mindset that are along a lot of players nowadays. You mean, yeah, the newer edition superhero players. Or we've got to clear the level before we can (laughs) face the big bad evil guy. It's not not an MMORPG. Right. You need to know when to run. That's as much of a skill as anything else in D&D. No when to walk away. <laughs> no when to run. I'm sorry. Never count your money. You got me into the Kenny Roger move when he started saying that. <laughs> First you might be a redneck, now Kenny Rogers. Yeah, I don't know where I'm there something Country that... and Western team episode of Save or Die Podcast. Ooh. So that's where you're going to stand. You're going to put some lethality into your campaign, make it a little more realistic. Uh... You're not going to stand for stupidness? Yes or no? Yeah. There's got to be a real threat to death. However, I do think that 
without balancing encounters, a lot of things that they run into should be roughly at their power level. Maybe a hit die higher or a hit die lower. Mm. Not necessarily. I mean, when you go out and... Well, I'll get to my stance in a moment. We'll continue with yours. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, that's that's pretty much it. And conversely, I think um, treasure rewards mm -hmm. should be commensurate with the with the threat that you face. Even if it's a first level adventure, if you guys killed a troll, six or seven hit die, well, then you should get treasure appropriate for killing that troll. Right, but we'll we'll talk about treasure rewards in another t another time. That's a whole different. Uh, conversation actually so okay let's just stick with the uh the lethality in the campaign here i uh generally from were you done mike i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you yeah I, i'm done okay uh i'll step up again here uh i generally have to i have the philosophy which i believe um i think it was either frank menser or gary guy said it himself of, you know, it's not my fault that the characters in the middle of the night go blazing with pitchforks and torches into the cave where all the monsters are hiding and they get themselves <laughs> killed. That's not my problem. If they're that stupid, <laughs> then they deserve to die. I'm not mm -hmm. going to put that safety feature on my campaign. I don't care. Your character wants to run in there and rush 14 orcs by himself and he's first level? Go ahead. See what happens. That's... The, that's the, there's got to have to some some realism... Some the definition of doing something stupid. Yeah, you you can't have that. Just haha! I'm gonna come in and save it, and I'm gonna do. Oh, I'm gonna walk out, defeating it and becoming Conan the Barbarian or this, the Terminator or something. It's just no, no, no. You're gonna die, and I have no problem killing characters, and my group knows that, and they don't like that. But you know what? Too bad. <laughs> you're not gonna win yeah. every counter. You're not gonna get all the gold. You're not gonna be the most famous person in the world. I just don't believe in that. I have to have some type of control over the characters and I'm not going to let them walk all over my world and I don't have a problem throwing a dragon in an adventure with first level characters but I'm not going to make them fight the dragon I may use it for role play purposes if they're yeah. stupid enough to attack <laughs> a giant dragon <laughs> exactly then, then they deserve to be barbecued yeah but generally when they meet creatures like that they won't attack it and they'll just they generally know that it's for role-playing purposes. So, attack a dragon, and you're stupid. <laughs> First level, Talk definitely. or run like a scared old woman. <laughs> and, uh, Liz, what would you do in your campaigns? Well, I think we're all roughly on the same page. Um, I will say, if I knew someone was very new at role-playing, and had either no experience previous or very little experience, if they're about to do something stupid, I would say something like, are you really sure you want to do that? You know, but... Yeah, but... <laughs> I, yeah, I'll give you to say that to a new person, yeah, but you can't say that to someone who's been playing for a long time. No, no, no. But, I mean, if they're just starting out... They haven't really gotten the hang of it yet, and they're not quite sure what's stupid and what's not because they don't know what they're capable of in the game. Now, I I don't have a problem with you know trying to give them a little nudge it's like you might want to rethink this. But yeah, more experienced players, if they do something dumb, by all means. Uh, that being said, yeah, I'm not going to go out of my way 
to try to kill off people's characters because that's not fun for me, that's not fun for them. And the whole point is for everyone to have a good time. Yeah. So, yeah, if they're dumb, sure, the, let the dice fall where they may. If they're doing the right things, I'm not going to try to kill them. And there have been some people I know who have had an adversarial sort of relationship with their players. You know, it's my job to kill them. It's their job to try to stop me from killing them. And some groups like that, but that's not for me. Well, it's late. It, it's ridiculous. Any DM at any time can kill the player characters. Well, yeah. If that's what you want to do. But that's a pretty lame game. And you're pretty soon going to lose players. <laughs> yeah, you'll be just you by yourself soon, playing the solo adventures. Yeah. That being said... <laughs> Of course, especially in the box D&D sets, regen uh, reincarnation, or I should say resurrection, mm -hmm. comparatively really isn't that expensive. It is a plausible thing that can be done unless you're first or second level. Which is a good thing, because my character kept getting killed by giant rats, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens. Death happens, and... Uh... Most we can never do is let me live that down. <laughs> Most we can it's do is embarrassing. Like... Well, you were a first level thief. Four hit yeah. points. I mean, <laughs> one good bite, and you're toast. Yeah. But half the time, it wasn't the bite itself. It was the poison, or rather, you know, I got infected because of the diseases the rat had, and that's what killed me. All right, so. Now that you guys have spoken about that part, why don't you go back and tell the listeners what exactly how this situation came about? Since everybody's sitting there going, hmm. Mike? Well, basically, um, she was, her character, along with a party, be doing the thievey thing, was in the front, and they had turned a corridor where part of the corridor had collapsed into this kind of rubble area, and... Basically, if you go down to the bottom to take any look-sees, look you get attacked by giant rats. Okay. And that's what happened, and she got killed. So, so they pulled her body out, went to a prior room that had empty sarcophagi, <laughs> and stuck her body in there to basically until they were finished in the dungeon, and then they would go back and they got her resurrected, and they did. And then they went in again, and another giant rat <laughs> <laughs> so they went back to the sarcophagus and stuck her in there. So it was a repeating cycle over and over again. Well, well it did, not more than twice. But Still, now I was starting to think I should maybe have my name on that particular sarcophagus. Maybe it was meant for you. <laughs> a scroll of protection against r giant rats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's another good issue. Do uh with parties just throw your companion in the sarcophagi, uh, sarcophagus, excuse me, and uh, leave them there to the end of the adventure. Or are we gonna just go all out and be the whole total buddy and stop everything we're doing and try to save them as much as possible? So, yeah, I mean, some decide to do that. You know, okay, we're leaving the dungeon and we're gonna keep his body out near the horses or whatever. Or there's some that you know, hey, we can use him to wedge this door open. <laughs> Or throw the dead body at the attacking monster and hope that <laughs> <Yeah>. they... 
It'll, he'll 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 eat the mo- eat the dead body, and we can use this period to escape. Yeah, I remember my first experiences playing it was me actually when the great Joe DM, as I've said many times, ran adventures for us. Oh, 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 oh. yeah. Anyway, when he used to run adventures, it was usually just actually just me and my friend playing the games when we first started playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times one of us wound up dead. <laughs> <laughs> carrying the other person around, so... On a side note, did y'all have henchmen? No. Surprisingly not, we did not have henchmen. Yeah, my... When I was gaming in Mississippi and then here in Texas, I have found very few parties that hire henchmen, but I've heard it was pretty standard up in the Great Lakes region yes. for gamers. Uh, now, the Torchbearer and the Hirelings, henchmen were just expected. Yeah, I don't, we sorry, didn't do it ahead. either. I don't know... Yeah. Yeah, my issue was just that with just carrying the body around was kind of funny, but that is a good point. Henchmen using them in your campaign, why no one really does, but the Geneva area they did. I remember there's another podcast that you can listen to. Uh, was it Expeditions of the Ancient Academy? Have you guys heard of that one? Yeah. Uh, remember? I don't know if you go take a listen to that podcast. It's excellent for the first like four to seven episodes. Uh, they're using it, basic Mulvey basic D and D, by the way, to, and they're basically recording a game session for yes. those listening. It's an actual so thank you, an actual play podcast with a pretty decent sound, but then they go into like other funny games halfway through it. So, yeah. just listen to the first couple. Anyway, when he sets up the adventure, he's he goes old. The DM goes old school by the book rules, and he encourages his players to hire. I mean, the group has what seven people in it. And they still each hired a henchman. So they had like this like entourage running around. <laughs> but to a degree, that's what the original game was written for. Yeah. I mean, you, you were expected to have retainers, hirelings, cronies, henchmen, whatever. So were they your red shirts? Yes. Instant expendable? Yeah. Yeah, but there were also specific rules that if you kept sending them out front, they would end up betraying you, or if you always got them to test the potion first, <laughs> they would expect to keep it, so on and so forth. Well, yeah, if I, we always went to some restaurant, and I was just, Mike, go do this, go do that. You'd get a little frustrated after a while, wouldn't you? Oh, definitely. So, yeah, they would become disgruntled and postal and take over your campaign, take over your character's life, and that's the end of you get a dagger in the back while they're on guard and you're asleep you know? yeah so you got to treat your henchmen good and give them gold and yeah I don't which know. may be why some parties don't like hiring them because other player characters you know that the player around the table is controlling them henchmen are inevitably under the control of the dm true except in combat circumstances so that may have something to do with it too so would that be a case of how much do you trust your DM? Mm. Potentially. Um, think- and again, that could get back into the subject, you know, lethality in the campaign. Yeah. I suppose, you know, you can bringing those guys in can make a real difference in a given combat situation. You know, four people playing at a table with four characters and running into 12 orcs is a lot different than those four people playing with six extra henchmen running into those 12 orcs or 14 or whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, the DM would be controlling them. It's not like the players. I mean, other than the players saying, I have an attack, I mean, you can probably do that, but... And a lot of DMs just say that during combat, you know, you control the actions of your henchmen. 
as long as you don't do something, you know, obviously suicidal. Yeah, not like I run into the, the pit of demons and run away with them or something stupid like that. Yeah. And it also makes a good gold sink for taking away players' gold. But again, that's a treasure issue, so. Well, yeah. Definitely interesting how the henchmen... I never really thought about that until you brought it up. That's why I'm like kind of pondering while talking about that, because I think that got lost in translation with later editions. Cause... Yeah, I mean, I remember reading the rules, but for some reason, our parties, whether I was DMing or whether I was a player, it just never really occurred to me to do it. I know they encourage it, and uh, I think the Mensa rules encourages you by uh, hiring hench uh, henchmen or hirelings. And I remember reading in first edition, uh, they encourage it as well. But after that, I don't remember them encouraging at all anymore at that point. Yeah, Holmes did. Um, I think Liz already mentioned in a prior podcast that in the book Maze of Peril, you know, the party there has hired henchmen to assist in exploring the dungeon. Hmm. All right, cool. So I guess that'd be something we can throw out to everybody out there and see what they have to say about it henchmen and lethality in campaigns. What do you think? Yeah. What do you do at your table? How lethal do you think you are? Do you think, you know, a certain way is best, another way is, you know, weenie or whatever? <laughs> weenie. <laughs> with On that note, <laughs> we're going to head into uh, Random Encounters. So, random encounters. Vince giggled, by the way, at the end. That that wasn't a giggle. That was a manly chuckle. No, nope, that was a girl. That was a schoolgirl giggle. Definitely a schoolgirl giggle. Yeah, all right, all right, Mike. All right. All right. <laughs> See how it is going to be with this podcast today, uh, well. Professor Mike. So I this... have to separate you two. No. He started it. He started it. He started it. No, we're not going to do that. He's on my side of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, in Random Encounters this week, we have jellies. We're going to talk about every type of jelly possible. So I would like to talk about Smucker's grape jelly. That's oh. a good one. Wait. Die, heretic. <laughs> oh, you meant like gelatinous cube type things or oozes. Yeah, jelly oh. I saw the topic jelly is I'm thinking he wants to talk about like peanut butter and jelly or It was the exclamation at the end, wasn't it? Oh, so I should have said jellies. No, I should have written jellies without the exclamation mark at the end. See or, that made you think, oh, smuckers. Or are we oh. talking about those shoes from the ladies that all the girls used to wear that were like jelly shoes? I don't know anything about that. <laughs> Liz? I did actually have a pair of those. <laughs> And they were very uncomfortable, and I never bought any more of them. They but, didn't look very yeah, comfortable. I eh? bought them simply because everybody else had them. They didn't look very comfortable. They weren't. <laughs> Slave to fashion. Yeah, pretty much. So, uh, on to the jellies. Uh, why, why jellies, and uh, why can't we spread them on butter? I mean, bread. <laughs> well, I suppose you could, but I would <laughs> recommend it. One thing I found kind of interesting was one of the... I decided to get what I thought were the four core jellies and puddings and oozes and whatnots <laughs> that were in all the versions. And much to my surprise, 
the black pudding was not in Holmes. Hmm. Nor in at least pre-Greyhawk Brown Book D&D. Which would have surprised me. I would have thought that would have been one of the iconic, you know, jellified monsters. But no. The four I ended up choosing for all of them, which was a gelatinous cube, a gray ooze, green slime, and ochre, uh, ochre jelly. Which I suppose, strictly speaking, is the only jelly, but, you know, you get the idea. Yeah, but they're they're you meant they're gelatinous in like form and liquidy right. and gooey and stuff like that. Basically, homicidal blobs. Yeah. So, are they pretty much the same in each edition? I, I'm kind of looking at them over right now. They kind of look almost the same. Maybe there's some differences slightly in them. Well, more or less, they're the same, but not exactly. Hmm. <laughs> Liz has a pet peeve. Uh-oh. <clears throat> Step up to the soapbox. All right. Holmes version, green slime. Okay, I'm looking at the it. The very first thing it says is it's non-mobile. And then later on, it says it often drops from high places, such as ceilings. <laughs> well, if it's non-mobile, how did it get up onto the ceiling in the first place so that it could drop on you? Someone puts it there. And how how does it know when to drop? Yeah. Um, so obviously it does move a little bit. And in later versions of the rule sets, they do allow green slime to have some movement. Very small, but... But yeah, it's like move zero, but it gets onto the ceiling somehow and then it drops on you. Never did understand that. <laughs> yeah, I, that, I guess you can... Wow, well, you can maybe get the green. Well, if it can't move and it would drop on somebody, can we just say that maybe it. Like, well, I can't see it having a grip because it's a slime, but dropping on someone, if it's on the ceiling, how would it get there? Someone put it there. Let's say a, a magic I user. I suppose maybe if it reproduces by spores, maybe it the spores got stuck on this maybe a very damp ceiling and started growing there and it wouldn't I, I you could say gravity would pull it to the ground but like Liz said how would it know and you said how would it know to drop at a certain point right I, guess, I mean unless it was just dripping as of normal moisture dripping in which case the party should notice hey there's weird green stuff dropping from the ceiling ahead of us yeah it doesn't really it just says step donor. So you can I don't it's not an intelligent, so to speak, creature. I think more or less it has no intelligence. I don't it doesn't yeah. actually say anything about that, does it? No, I'm looking at the menu. No, so. it's just basically a a goo. So it's not like it's going, haha, I'm going to drop on this player's head, so Yeah. So let, let's it shouldn't be anyway. Let's look at the most non intelligent one here, the green slime, and, and let's talk about like we're saying, different ways that we can use this green slime, because everybody likes hearing different ways to use it. So, to continue with our discussion, how it drops on a player's head, how would it get there? Like you said, the spores, maybe a uh, magic user would put it there as a trap. Yeah. Or a thief would put it there, maybe just to be naughty or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but you got to be careful, because it eats up all, all but stone. Right. 
all but stone. So, yeah. could you collect this in a jar? Theoretically, yeah. Wasn't yeah, there something ceramic? Wasn't there a big debate about this on Dragon's Foot about how you can collect it and put it in a container? Maybe. I think I, I remember reading know. that. Yeah, you can put I it mean, in a glass bottle, I suppose. But how would you scoop it? Can you yeah. scoop it? Yeah, you'd have to scoop it with something and scoop it kind of quickly and then drop the scooper in quickly before it, it dissolved the metal or wood or whatever. But does... Bigby's hand spell? Yeah, that works. Yeah. Now, yeah. Would, if you're moving it and taking some of it, does it lose its value because you're splitting it or does it always remain the same? You know, the potency of it. Of what I'm talking about. You know how when you pull something apart and you make it less and less and less, does it become less potent? I don't think it would. I mean, the other jellies and oozes and things, they pretty much specifically say if you split them, they just become two or more smaller whatevers, and they're all attacking you. And um, it doesn't mention that the smaller ones do fewer damage. You just now have lots of them. I, I like the fact that in the menstrual one, it says if it's not taken off or burned off, the victim completely becomes and in, in, turns into green slime. Yeah, that's yeah, that's Equal like mass. that in Holmes too. That's kind of you can't scrape it off. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of that's kind of drastic. <laughs> you become oh, yeah. a big green slime blob. <laughs> I wonder where they got this creature from or decided green slime. So how would you guys put it in your campaign? Like pretty much like you said over a door or under a door and I figure it would probably grow in caverns where there's a lot of moisture since they imply it's kind of a slightly vegetable matter mm. without directly saying it. That's kind of the impression I get. Kind of like algae. I was going to say I'd have it hiding with some non-lethal, you know, algae pools or moss and you know you're in the middle of it before you hit the actual dangerous green slime creature but yeah. wouldn't it turn that other moss and algae into green yeah. slime it would absorb like it says here it would, be, it would become it unless I suppose it could be in patches and it's just one more patch of weird color well as far as the Holmes rule states it only talks about turning flesh into green slime. It does not say a word about turning other stuff into green slime. Hmm. Now, it might be different in some of the other rule sets, but yeah, if I was doing slime. a game in Holmes, I would take that as read that it's only going to turn animal flesh or human flesh into green slime and other stuff will be left alone. Well, it does say it eats away wood and metal. So... Hmm. Yeah, it says it in the mentor one as well that it would be uh, flesh. So I guess Mike's theory would, would work if it would be in... Or Liz's theory, I'm sorry. If you walk into a, a pool of algae and whatever and then you finally get to it itself. Right? Yeah, I can, see there be, I can see there being an argument at the table about it, but that's probably what I would do. I would think putting this in front of a, like an, a cave, somewhere inside of a cave and you're exploring it, and your players hear, like, the drip of it falling down, and they try to figure out where it's coming from, and then drip falls on somebody. Or, yeah, especially if it's across a, 
corridor that they feel, or passageway they absolutely feel they have to pass under. Yeah. They might, yeah, they might risk it. Having to time the jump. Huh? Timing the jump so that it doesn't splat on them as they leave. Yeah, or something like that. Or if, you know, they're in a bunch of natural caverns with a lot of drippy anyway, they may just figure, oh, it's just more drippy. So it looks a little green. So what? Yeah. DMs can always hope. This is not as this is not a very lethal. But it can be, but a not very uh, trying to say dangerous thing to encounter. But there's always ways to use it so you can have fun with it. I mean, it's, I think this is more one of those DM have fun type creature type things. Yeah, it's kind of a fantasy equivalent of a landmine. Or yeah. a fantasy equivalent of an episode of You Can't Do That on Television. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, moving on to uh, the infamous Gelatinous Cube. So it's Love a big, giant cube <laughs> of clear jelly. How does this stay in cube form? I assume they mean it's a cube because it generally, at least, was expected to take up all the passageway of a corridor. And thus, by definition, it's sort of cubed. Because, like, the pictures I've seen of gelatinous cubes over the years is, like, a big, giant 3D square with, like, a face on it. (laughs) Really? A face? Yeah, it's, like, kind of like teeth and eyes or something. Oh, Okay. Like, I've seen depictions of it. That's what people have drawn and things, so. Okay, well, uh, the original one, though, you know, it's basically an amoeboid. Yes. Um, It, you know, you touch it, it paralyzes you, and then it slowly engulfs you. Because it's got a pretty slow movement, too, doesn't it, Liz? Um, Well, 60 feet per turn, Holmes, which... Which is basically half normal movement. Yeah. Yeah, they have 60 feet for Menser, too. And this is 20 in parentheses. I like the fact... Is there a surprise factor in the Holmes edition? Because I know Menser has a, actually a big surprise factor of a 1 and 4 on a 6. And since they're kind of clear, yeah, it would be very easy in a low-lit low area of a dungeon to walk right into one, perhaps, unless you've got it glimmering off the torchlight as you approach... Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, what you could do is you can hire a gelatinous cube to clean up your dungeon or your house or something, because it said it moves through the rooms and corridors of the dungeon, sweeping up, sweeping the halls clean of living and dead material. So, you know, it could be a housekeeper, if you think about it. Oh, yeah. Well, that was one of the points I was going to make. <laughs> you know, if you're in a dungeon and you roll a wandering gelatinous cube, I find it hard to believe that a, that a cube would be active in that dungeon and you wouldn't have noticed, wow, you know, these halls are really clean. <laughs> They're spotless. <laughs> you could eat off this. What the <laughs> but You know what I love about the gelatinous cube is the things that it can't devour or dissolve and it's like sitting there in the cube just taunting the players as they're getting absorbed. Oh yeah, like coins, magic <laughs> weapon, weapons, that yeah. sort of thing, just stuck in there. It's like a, it's like a fantasy jack, uh, Cracker Jack box. You know, you kill it and then see what's inside. You 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 kill your jack, Cracker Jack box? Every chance... Of, well, I can't now because they sell them in bags now. No boxes. So. 
Oh well. You, but still, you used to kill it. <laughs> it deserved it, man. Well, crackjacks crack crack kill you to begin with, so. <laughs> so it paralyzes his victim, uh, saving the reverse paralyzation. Uh, same thing in Holmes, Liz? Yes. Okay, so we are on the same page with that, and then it absorbs the uh, the creature slow of uh, the creature, the the victim, the player, very not the player, the character. That'd be funny <laughs> if it absorbs <laughs> the player, starts getting sucked in. Ah. And uh, it kind of plays plays into what Liz was talking about, walking right into it. Yeah, it's like not only do you walk right into it, but there's a good chance you will not then be paralyzed and can't pull out as it just slowly absorbs you. And then and you can't warn the people behind you. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It doesn't say... Alright, say you get absorbed by it. Now, are you going to die of suffocation? I would think so. And of course, it eventually will absorb your body as mass. Yeah, leaving your touch... armor and weapons. And... Touch of the cube causes two to eight points of damage as the creature seeks to devour its victim. According to Holmes. Yeah, that's two to eight. Um, actually, it doesn't... I don't see the Menser one actually doesn't. Yeah, two to eight plus special. It says, which I think is the paralyzation, isn't it? Yeah, it is the paralyzation. But uh, one thing I, I was always thought about since you put up a good point, it's Q because it, it engulfs the whole entire hallway. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you hear this thing moving through the hallway? <laughs> Wouldn't you hear like a like a. A slurpy sound? Yeah. Or something, or scraping against the ground, or... Well, since it's taking up the corridor, one will assume that it's moving its bulk by wiggling its mass. And since it totally takes up the hallway, there's no place for sound to reach you. So if it's moving toward you, you might not hear anything. If it's moving away from you, you might... Well, because I, I mean, you've all, we've all shaken Jello cubes around before, <laughs> yeah. and if you do shake a Jello cube hard enough, it does make a sound. I know I've tried. Don't ask me why, but we have. Okay, and you're <laughs> picking on me about the Cracker Jack box, whereas hey. you're using your Jello gelatin. J e l l o, buddy. All right. <laughs> and uh, so it does make some slight of like a vibration sound. So I'm just wondering, like maybe like you're right, you wouldn't hear it coming towards you, but you hear it going away from you. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> and the fact of wow, these dungeons are really clean, and they have the main really, really clean. Yeah. I guess I remember I'd... reading one of the D and D novels where, in a city, they had gelatinous cubes. They they had torches on the end of pikes that they would use to drive the gelatinous cube down. Streets and they would act as street cleaners. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's something you could point out to your players, you know, to set things up when they go inside of a dungeon and say they're walking around and you kind of just, as you're searching around, you kind of notice that this dungeon doesn't have the normal dungeony feel to it. There's no cobwebs, there's no debris, and everything looks kind of, I don't know, clean for a dungeon and you're kind of worried. Stones are almost shiny. Yeah, this, that's another good thing. Would a gelatinous cube leave behind slime? Do you think? Because it isn't kind of like a slimy, oozy thing. Yeah, I think so, because I, I suspect creating a slime trail is partially how it moves, like a slug. 
Yeah, granted, it would dry up eventually, like a slug slime trail after a while. But right. let's say it passed through the hallway, and the the, the the characters just come down, and it just left the area a couple minutes ago. They would they would see slime, shiny rocks. Yeah, yeah. If you touched a wall, would you have that deadening of the skin of your hand? Yeah, if there's something cool, yeah. I'd it, say so. The paralyzation, does it come from the slime itself, or does it come from the gelatinous cube? We don't know. Yeah. I guess that's where the DM fiat comes in. Exactly. Even though it's not DM fiat segment, but, you know. It's random, random characters. But random, yeah. random DM fiats. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah, and stuff. Really awesome. But, yeah, that's a good point. Hmm. So, the, the setting this creature up in different ways of using it is pretty self-explanatory. I think we've gone over various different things. And, and I like the jello analogy. You could have cubes of jello laying in wait in your refrigerator if you're planning on having <laughs> a gelatinous cube. Just plop one down. Didn't they actually have little make... bits of fruit inside it saying that it's like the armor <laughs> or weapons or stuff in there and didn't they actually make a gelatinous cube minifigure that was actually like kind of looked like a jello cube? <laughs> Who did? I think Wizards made that later on. They made it look like it, it kind of looked like a Jello cube that you would, you know, have 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 in a Jello bowl or something. Now I, I always like used to use just a six sider. That that works fine, yeah. Sort sort of like a square piece of plexiglass or something, just well, clear, clear plastic. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, in in interest of uh, of time, we have two more left to talk about. Um, Liz, I'll let you pick out of the last two which one you want to discuss. The jelly or the uh, the ooze. I'll talk about the ooze. Alright. So, the gray ooze is another uh, classical type uh, monster for D&D. You always hear a lot about a gray ooze. And so, what basically is a gray ooze? Other than being gray and oozy-like. Well, it looks like wet stone. So, that makes it hard to detect, which is pretty cool from a DM trying to kill the character's standpoint. The really brilliant part about the Grey Ooze is that it can be killed by normal weapons, but it corrodes metal when it when you touch it. Ooh. So the you very can kill thing it. Yeah. It's impervious to cold and fire and lightning. Well no it can be killed by lightning also. But cold and fire spells won't do it. Regular weapons will do it, but you'll destroy your weapon if you attack it with your stuff. So, it's it's a brilliant conundrum. It's like, oh, I've got to kill this, but I'm going to ruin my sword. Crap! <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a really... It's kind of like a rust monster, but, you know, cooler in a way, you know? Just, you know. But oozier. Oozier, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. it gets on the weapons, and how long does it take for the weapon to start it corroding? Says one turn. One now, turn? is that a combat turn or a regular turn? I'll assume a combat turn. So Item, it doesn't yeah. take that long at all. What does it say in Menser? Menser says to destroy the normal. The acid will dissolve and destroy normal armor or weapons in only one round and magical yep. items in one turn. So I assume they mean turn is in. One complete turn, so. Yeah. Huh. 
So yeah, that's pretty rough. Uh, at first, first hit, the ooze sticks to the victim, automatically destroying any normal armor and continuing to inflict two to sixteen points of damage each round. Wow. Somebody got too much magic. Yeah. Sick of gray ooze on him. Wow, Lara may contain one to three oozes, possibly, with special tra- treasure. A mommy, daddy, and baby ooze. Oh. <laughs> so I'm trying to think. Why would they have special treasure? They, they would eat it, wouldn't they? Well, if it's not metal. It's, well, yeah, okay. It said possibly with a special treasure made of stone, DM's choice. For ah. me- in the Mensa rules, it says that. Okay. I'm trying to figure out ways to use a gray ooze that'd be kind of cool. Because, I mean, I don't see much use out of a gray ooze. Well, I guess... there's the there's the obvious drop down on the players, and that would work. Player characters. Yeah, because the, the gray ooze does move, unlike the slime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, hmm. Just drop everything on the players' heads. Yeah, just drop all on the players' Yeah, yeah. Drop cobalts on players' heads. Sure, why not? I was waiting for the cobalt reference. No, Sign, co- no. no we're going to be cobalt-free and smurf-free this episode, okay? Except that you just said that, so we're not. Well, we're allowed to reference it really... Be quiet, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's a neutral creature also, which I, I noticed that, like the green slime is lawful. How is, it, how is a green slime lawful? <laughs> I noticed I that myself. Like, That's what? why I wanted you to, to double check in Menser. Because I rem- I saw that. I was like, huh? Maybe that was a, a a typo in the copy I had? Actually, this is definitely worth looking up now that I noticed that. <laughs> Let's see here. Wow. That's it? Yeah. And how Green Slime has a pretty good morale, oddly <laughs> enough. We were talking about how how a green slime would retreat from combat. Very slowly. It doesn't move, (laughs) green slime. (laughs) Except when it does. It doesn't move, though. Doesn't it? No, it has a a zero movement rate, I think. Oh, in Menser? I thought it moved a little bit. It moved one, in parentheses. Yeah, like a teeny tiny amount. Is that like one inch or something? (laughs) One foot. I know I should have had this ready, but I didn't think it. I didn't think there was that much of a discrepancy. But oh well. Oh well. I but yeah, I mean, gray ooze. The best way to use it is, I would suspect, anything that where you can get away, take advantage of its ability to look like wet stone. I mean. No, uh, I want to say that you are one hundred percent correct when you type that out, Mike. It is a lawful creature. It is lawful. We have the great magistrate. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Green the, that's got to be a typo. Got to be a typo. It, it probably uh, was there any like errata put out for the uh, the menser set? I don't remember seeing any. Yeah, I don't know either. I suppose if there were, it would have probably been in the rules cyclopedia, but bah, I didn't look at that. So because it's not in a box. Yeah, but, and. I, uh, I like to say I don't really support the rules of Encyclopedia. I don't. I don't know. I don't like the system. That's just my thoughts. <laughs> I guess anyway. that's, that's something we should uh, email Frank about and see if, if maybe there was some story behind why he made the green slime lawful, or the gray ooze. 
It was the green was, slime. I missed it. Was the green earlier. slime? Okay. Yeah, the green yeah. slime was the was the lawful one. Yeah. Lawful. It is very very obedient and and orderly in its consumption of of flesh or whatever. Yeah. It's all right. True. Well, if you guys have any errata or you have any story behind all this, you can give us an email, and uh, Mike will happily pop up that email and not forget about it and uh, read it. With well, I'll get it. Liz will read it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Save or die podcast gmail dot com. So idea for the gray ooze. What's that? At the bottom of a pot of a uh, small. Like in a hallway where you have it flooded, yeah. Clear water, but it's at the bottom, so it looks like wet stone. So you walk and you walk right over it. Or you could have it at the bottom of a pit trap. Even better. Of course, you would have had to trap the grays down there first, and then had to feed it. So, unless it's you know you're invading a dungeon that is currently occupied and organized, that would work. Well, in B1, when you're randomly rolling monsters, <laughs> was any of these monsters in B1? I don't remember. Do you guys remember offhand? No. I have no idea. I, guess I don't a... think so, but I wouldn't swear to it. Because that'd be kind of interesting to have a randomly rolled <laughs> great I know ooze. I've seen gelatinous cubes yeah. in a lot of wandering monster tables. And yeah. that was always been my, grip, my gripe about it. Of course, since you could ride in your own monsters and be one, you could have one. But I don't recall if one is specifically in a table for wandering purposes. Hmm. Alright. That'll cue us into our last segment of the night. And, uh, products of your imagination. Ogre Jelly, you'll just have to wait. Yes, it will have to wait. These Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. Products of your imagination, as I've stated, is our last segment of the night, and uh, we're actually going to be doing another review. Ta-da! Review. Anyway, we're going to be... Uh, Mike, you got the email about this from the uh, creator of this uh, module. Do you remember exactly how it went? Well, basically, he was just sending us a code to get a free copy of the module and basically asked us to take a look at it and give a review. And his nader uh was Peter I believe his name was Peter Spawn. Yeah. And the name of his module is Blood Moon Rising. It is uh, a Labyrinth Lord, which I love, adventure designed for three to six first to third level characters. So uh we're already doing good because it's Labyrinth Lord, and it's old school, so we're doing definitely good. What I don't know what SNG is. It's a little symbol. I guess the name of, that's the name of his company. I don't know. Or the people that produced it. You see that, Liz? No, yeah, I, I see the I see the logo in the bottom, but I don't know what SNG stands for. Um, I I know nothing. No, I I don't see any. Ah, small niche games on uh, the inside front cover. Ah. Small Niche Games. Okay, cool. So I guess you can go to Small Niche Games and you can download this, download this, or you can get this through uh, Drive Through. Drive Through RPG, yeah. I wonder if it's on Lulu too, maybe. Okay. And so Blood Moon Rising. So what did you guys think of this module? 
Well, the hard part is going to be to talk about it without giving any spoilers. Yeah. So, is there any type of synapse we can give of this, or? Well, I think we can give the the setup, which okay. is basically the heroes, the adventuring party, which may or may not be heroes, are starting in the village. Of Gan- Gan- uh, Gatherton, I believe it was. Yeah. It's during a, um, uh, I don't have it open here, but it was during, some, uh, during a festival. I should open it. Okay, hold yeah. On. <laughs> it's during a, a local hero festival, right? Right, yes. for the, the local saint with the town is named after. Saint. Uh, Garen. Saint Garen. Targaryen. Okay. And the games are kind of like, you know, some stuff you'd see at a Highland Games, though there is one of them which is basically a sword fighting type tournament. So he says in his module this is a the Blood Moon Rising is a free form sandbox style adventure presenting a number of events that are scheduled to unfold over the course of a five day feast of the St. Karen uh, festival. Although the festival itinerary which he gives you the itinerary of what happens outlines a typical day at the festival other major events are further described in separate daily sections. Uh, everything's been spaced out to accommodate low-level characters with plenty of downtime provided between events to allow the party time to heal, memorize spells, interact, and explore the village and its surroundings and follow up on leads and plot hooks. So this kind of looks like, right off the bat, looks like he has everything planned out. It's going good. There's plenty of role-playing aspects going on with it. Uh, when I first read in the beginning, I was like, all right, that's awesome. I always love adventure and things people can run around and role play for. So the events, events that, go ahead, Mike, and, and events that happen, frankly, regardless of what the players do. Right. He also does it. If it, they, he says that the players don't do this, don't worry about it. This still happens, or this will happen no matter what this happens. So it's not like you have to force your or railroad your players into doing some things that are in this module. Like he said, it's a sandbox thing. Yeah. yeah, and for that, I think he definitely succeeded. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a a modern modern day version of say, keep on the borderlands because you've got a village, you've got some wilderness around it, you've got a place where characters could start off from in a new campaign world. So, I really did like the setting for Blood Moon Rising. I thought it was pretty keen. <laughs> Had some nice NPC characters in the back that you could use not only in this setting, but if you wanted to have some of them show up in other adventures. There's a group of, I don't want to say wandering minstrels, but kind of like an <laughs> acting troupe, which is part of the oh, NPCs uh, that are provided in the back. And cool. you could have them show up anywhere you wanted. Yeah, you know, Even apart I- from just being at the village. And to play into uh, last episode's random encounters with NPC parties, they have an NPC party, the Wilder Company. Boom, boom, boom! Kind of rivals or eventually even enemies to the PCs. Yeah, definitely. I also like the artwork uh, as far as he gives you a good, nice little map. Simple to the point with the numbers on it, not this elaborate, like, you know, schemed out map. So I do like that part, definitely. 
Yeah. Uh, go on, Liz. You we interrupted you. Sorry. I think I was pretty much done, but oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, liked the setting. Liked most of the NPCs. There were a few, I would say, overused tropes that, well, I find them overused as a female gamer. The farmer's wife who's trying to make trouble. I won't go into how or who. But, you know, some of the gender roles that you have NPCs playing are kind of, yeah, I've read that before. Why can't we have men doing some of the same? But that's a personal gripe, and players are going to be guys, so I fully understand why you would have it that way rather than the other. But I'm still going to gripe about it a little. <laughs> cool. And uh, I, I was, Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I was happy at finally seeing a village where the shop owners lived above their shops. Well, that's all too often. You end be. up with a fantasy equivalent of like, you know, they've got a shop in the mall or something, <laughs> and they go home, and it's like medieval yeah, crafts and artisans didn't do that. No, they, the only time they would leave their shop was if they were going to the bar after work to unwind. Right, but, but they go, went home generally above the shop. Right. I'd also like to point out he has uh, different type of creatures in here, like you've uh, adjusted the orcs and made them blood moon orcs, which is uh, not really any different, but there's he made them slightly... Actually, he varies on that. Sometimes they're red moon. Red moon? Oh, he did? Yeah, yeah. you're right. I did notice that. You're correct. Now, now that I'm looking at it, he does say red moon... Uh, he does say red, and other times he says blood. Yeah. Maybe that's a typo. Maybe he went back and changed it afterwards and forgot to change it in, in certain spots. Yeah, probably. But it's interesting. But it doesn't get in the way of play. No, 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 no. You know what he means. Uh, but it's interesting that he uh, he took the orc and he decided to uh, make it special to his world. By uh, yeah. Let's see. He gives them uh, the normal stats: uh, leather armor, shield, blah blah blah, hit dice one, hit points, blah blah blah. blah. But a special uh, negative one to hit in sunlight. So, and he gave them moon-shaped trinkets because they're blood moon orcs. But uh, that's kind of cool. I I always like to see uh, different creatures made out of like the traditional creature. Like in the one module that I'll be running for the the uh, convention, uh, the spider farm. Uh, mm-hmm. with Stuart Marshall, he actually made Shadow Goblins, which are different than the regular ones, so I, I like... So you don't have the guy who's memorized the monsters in the back of the rule book go, aha! <laughs> yeah, I like that because they're like, haha, it's a goblin but but the DM can go, haha, it's not the typical goblin. I, I like stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know yeah, why. Yeah. Though I must admit, the way the orcs are brought into the module bothers me a bit. Really? Why is that? Well, considering this is supposed to be a traditional village event, yeah, calling in participants from all over the area, and that small of an orc band just shows up and camps in range, I just, I don't buy that. I think there should be a lot more of them 
or they had may have been uh, on a recon, get in and then immediately head back to their headquarters. Not, oh, well, this is a nice place. We're going to camp out a while. Yeah, I guess I, you're I find right. that hard to swallow. Well, I guess as the DM of this module, you're running it, I guess you could do whatever you want. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And that would be something I would fix. Um, but, you know, we're trying to review it pretty much as is. So. Right, right, right. And, and I, I guess you're right. Why would they do that? Yeah. I mean, showing up, sure. They may be looking for caravans to raid, maybe this or that, maybe looking for a week, even farm village or something. Food. But to just set up camp maybe in the area. Maybe food or something, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I find that difficult to to accept, personally. So, in the festival, other than the orcs, they also have a lot of, well, I guess we could probably say it because we're reviewing it, a lot of demonic things in it. Like, there's demonic horses, and there's uh, demonic, I think, shadows or something. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be revolving around having a demon come out of this or that. So, I don't want to give away too much, just in case there is players listening to this, and there's a DM that's like, oh, cool, I have this module, I'm running it, I don't want my players to know. Well, there's demons on the cover, so I don't think we're giving too much away by saying there's yeah. going to be some kind of demon involved. <laughs> yeah, like, he has one, Night Demon is another one, um, he gives the stats for that, which I don't think believe is any standard for a Night Demon, so he made up his own demon there. Yeah, that's my other gripe. Go ahead. Um... Again, this is a spoiler, so if you're going to play in this, don't listen. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Go ahead. But considering where they're supposed to be coming from and everything, they're awfully wimpy. <laughs> I mean, some of the monsters, or indeed, one of the horses you run into could kick their ass. Yeah. And I know this is for a low level, but if you're going to you know, call them demons, you ought to have a bit more oomph to them. Well, all right, I'll pull up, I'll pull up the demon here, the night demon. Okay, uh, it's alignment, it's chaotic, it's movement 90, uh, unless it's flying 150. Its armor class is 5, naturally. It's got a hit dice of 2. And hit points he listed as 9. It has 4 attacks. You don't think that's a lot? Yeah, 4 attacks are a lot, but look at the damage they're doing. Yeah, 1d2, 1d2, 1d6, 1d4. What are the... I didn't... Is it like a bite-bite claw claw type thing or yeah so basically you're going to run into an average and yeah you got to roll all four of those attacks to hit which you know you can expect half of them are probably going to miss yeah so depending you're going to do one to three hit points of damage probably for any one quote unquote demon now I suppose you could rationalize it by saying they're not demons that's just what the villagers called them but that kind of flies in the face of the beginning, which I'm not going to go into again because of spoilers, basically the front story, which is which gets me to one of the other things I liked. I like how he showed how legends can change over time from the truth. I did. I really liked that too. Okay. As a history history professor, I really really liked that. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, that was pretty much my gripes. I mean that, and they're minor. But yeah. that really kind of stuck in my teeth. Uh, there's also um, some games I noticed that you can play uh, during the the festival. So there's like things that you're 
player characters can do to interact with NPCs. So if you want to roleplay some information or something, you can have them like join in some of the games or where they can watch the honor games. Mm-hmm. And he actually has a, a little system set up here of a total of 15 points accumulated during the game to win. Uh, and you can roll some dice for the range and how it happens. I think yeah. that's kind of cool. I like how he involves... He has a way to involve the characters with the NPCs, whether it be for fun or for role-playing. I mean, whatever you want to do as a DM, but I'm looking at this right now, and I see the possibilities of a role-play aspect of this, of the, the characters getting your information while in this, like, game. I right. like that, too. Especially if one of the characters actually wins. Yeah. Then... That gives an excuse for bringing the party back to this village later on because they have to either compete again to keep the mantle or they're going to have to give it to whoever wins the next year. So they have to come back if one of them wins. Okay, cool. So to end up here like we normally end this segment... uh, how many dragons are we going to rate this? And usually, we, traditionally, we start with Mike, so we're going to start with Mike as usual. <laughs> Mike, out of five dragons, how many dragons are you going to give this? I will say a good solid three. Three dragons. I would go, if you're, if you're willing to tweak the adventure, which most DMs should be willing to do, but some don't. I would kick it up to a 3.5, but I'll, I'll count. I'll cut that 0.5 just out of the box. It requires some tweaking, but it's got a good foundation, and it is. It's a setting. It's a sandbox setting. I remember finishing reading it. And my first thought was, you know, really take away the 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 games, and this is really a setting for a, a mini campaign. Yeah. Okay. And then we normally head over to Liz. I'm with Mike. I would also give it a three. Okay. Same reasons, I assume? Most of the same reasons. I... I like the, I like the setting a lot. I think that's really the, the strongest point of the module, is the setting, your NPCs, and how you can take elements of it and bring it over into other adventures of your own later. The Mm. adventure itself, if it was me, I'd probably try to break it up and say when your first level characters come to the village to begin with, I'd have them just deal with the orcs. And when they come back again, maybe after they've leveled up a bit, then have them deal with the demon aspect and make the demons a little oomphier. That's probably what I would do with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. that's per- that's personal. Um, but yeah, I think it's a great setting, and it certainly deserves a three just on that alone. Okay. Uh, I'm going to rate it a 3.5 because I do like the, the the setting. I do like the feel of the module. I like that it, he details a lot of stuff out for you, even though it is a sandbox uh, type of adventure. Because I hate when it's like, it's a sandbox and here's a whole bunch of crap. 
you throw it in the sandbox and do what you want. I like that he actually goes and takes the time to say, all right, this will happen, that will happen, and if you want this to happen, this will happen. But this will still happen if this doesn't happen. Like He'll outline it for you even though I like that. Saves your DM time. Uh, like we said, there was a couple mistypes in there. But, you know, you always expect that with everybody's uh, work. You know, not everybody's perfect. There's always going to be some type, but we're only human. But I would like to see more artwork. It didn't really have much artwork I'd in like it. I would have had a map of the Abbey. What's that? I would have liked to have had a map of the interior of the Abbey. Because the way things potentially can go, I mean, there could theoretically be some combat within the Abbey. Yeah. And there's really been nice. Yeah, that would have been nice. But there's no real artwork. I mean, when you read the original ones, there was always artwork in it. So that's that's why. I mean, I'd like to see maybe some of the other creatures, maybe like a depiction of what they what he thinks they look like, just just to get an idea in my head. It would have been cool if maybe he like had someone draw a picture of a demon grub because that's one of the monsters in there, just to see what a demon grub looked like. Yeah, I mean, he gives yeah. a description of it, which is great. He tells you what the monsters give you the stat block, but still, I'd like to see what he thinks a demon grub looks like, or his artist's depiction of an, a, a, a grub. Yeah. So overall, we're going to be saying this is probably about a three dragon module worth the download. Because uh, anything oh, definitely. three and up is always worth the download. Anything below three is iffy, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, a five is definitely worth the buck. Buy it no matter what, uh, as you go down the scale. But anything below a three, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with. So, we're doing a a three for this module. Definitely, I would go pick it up. Go to uh, drive through or RPG now. I think it is. Yeah, and uh, Blood yeah. Moon Rising, and uh, download a copy, and you'll be surprised. You might have some fun with this uh, module. I'm thinking about maybe giving it a test run if. Uh, I have some time at the convention on Saturday. It looks like it's not bad. I mean, I might want to run this. Just oh, to no, see. definitely not. And I look, I look forward to seeing more modules from this guy. He, he might, and you said it was small niche games, Liz, what you saw? Yes. So maybe there's a, there's a, I don't see a website link for it. Usually they put it in there, but I don't see one. So maybe if we do a, a search and we find something, we'll, uh, we'll put something up. Or maybe if Peter uh, emails us again, we'll, uh, we'll talk to him about that. Anyway, if that's all we have, I think that's going to uh, put another close on the show this week. Another sad, sad goodbye. Another ripped shirt. <laughs> another ripped shirt. Another town we have to run away from. Yeah. As the sad music plays in the background and we're heading out of another show. But we'll be back. Talking about more fun and exciting things as we run while we can, try to make the save, something or other. I still can't remember the catchphrase that Liz made up. And remember, Semper Ubi, Sub Ubi. Yeah, whatever. Have a good night, folks. <laughs> Bye.